Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. I'm your host, Danny, and today we got another interview. Uh, this interview is with a guy that I met over at the Free Grace Alliance workshop back in October in Texas. Uh, his name's Thani Abu Hamed, and basically he a, he has a website out there called goldenapples.art, A-R-T. I didn't even, art, didn't even know art was a domain <laughs> extension, but uh, so basically, you know, when we were at the Free Grace Alliance conference, I got to know Thani and and we talked a little bit about just, you know, life and, and what he was going through. And he had a workshop out there about deconstruction. And so I know for the past few years, deconstruction has been one of those terminology that has been very rampant within the church and even outside the church, people deconstructing from their own views and beliefs. And so with this, I was able to be blessed and fortunate to be able to run into a guy who who went through this struggle, this battle. And to be able to share his experiences and what he learned through the entire process of spiritual deconstruction. And so before we actually get into the interview, Thani, I just want to say thank you for being with us. And is there anything before we get into it you want to share with the audience, the people watching, who you are, ministries, anything like that? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Danny, for having me. Um, like you said, I run a ministry called Golden Apples um, in Denton, Texas, and Really, my whole thing is that um, I call myself an artist, a catalyst, and a dialogist. And uh, you're gonna have to explain <laughs> those terms for me. <laughs> yeah. So, artist being um, being, uh, you know, I'm a musician by trade, and my training, and um, and that's a huge part in which I want to minister to the world, and mm -hmm. and also be a, a model. You know, like Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Mm -hmm. um, that's really how I want to minister to fellow creatives around me. You know, mm -hmm. here's let me show you. You know, let me show yeah. you what I, what, how it's done. Let me, let me walk that path with you one step right. ahead or something like that. As a catalyst, um, I, I mean that to be uh, the, the spark of change. So um, I, I run a small community of creatives in Denton mm -hmm. for, um, for artists, for Christian uh, creative types. And um, we're really interested in developing a community um, that is that fosters you know growth and specifically ministers to those who are in this crisis state of you know working through their beliefs yeah as a free grace guy like that was critical for me is making my faith my own and going against the grain uh, mm -hmm. of what i inherited growing up you know i come from a more kind of reformed calvinist uh oh, okay upbringing yeah and so um developing an environment where we can you know, work diligently and honestly through, you know, bi biblical interpretation um, yeah. that may or may match up with tradition, that kind of thing. Right. And um, when I say dialogist, uh, yeah, it's not a common word, but it just means someone who engages in a dialogue. So what I'm doing right now, talking with you in an interview or writing articles on my website um, yeah. in written form, that kind of thing. So engaging with the public through podcasting, articles on concepts like spiritual deconstruction and stuff so excellent, excellent. like i said that yeah you were saying what like i said what the website goldenapples.art that's where that's the landing spot for everything i'm doing now you mentioned uh artists right and have a yeah. community of artists you know christian-based artists uh what do you mean by the artist is, is this like music is this like painting you know what what is mm. that yeah so i um i <laughs> Growing up, uh, some friends of mine used to call me Swiss Army because I was very <laughs> non-committal <laughs> with, 
with the disciplines that I was a part of. So I, I mean, primarily I'm, I'm a music guy. My mom was an opera singer. I've been in music since the beginning of my life. How do you feel about the Phantom of the Opera being shut down? (laughs) I had no idea they've been shut down. Well, 2023, they're done. Oh, ouch. Well, thanks. I'm sure that will be just temporary until they start a new production. Hopefully, hopefully. But I'm sorry. You mentioned your mom was opera singer. So I was like, well, what's he think about this? So me and my daughter, we love Phantom of the Opera. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's a good one. But I'm sorry. I cut Uh, you off. No, no, no. I so I I, I'm a music guy. graduated in music uh, from University of North Texas. So that's really kind of the primary focus of what I do artistically. But I've always been interested in graphic design. I did film in high school. I did dance at one point. So I'm kind of all over the place. My my yeah, the, the purpose of the Golden Apples ministry is to be an integration of all artistic disciplines, a collective of mm-hmm. Christian creatives that are collaborating together, doing life together across the whole spectrum of whether it's digital art, visual art, you know, painting, sculpture, mm-hmm. dancing, film, acting, writing, you name it. Is anything like this out there already, or are you sort of a pioneer in this aspect? Um, I definitely, as I've been talking about this to people over the last year, I've definitely been made aware of other versions of this. Um, I need to catch up on everything that's been out there. Okay. Um, but in my area, at least in Denton, mm-hmm. um, in the North Texas area, I, I don't know of anything that exists like that. So that's partly why I've been so um, motivated to, to make yeah. it happen. That's pretty exciting, man. You know, I, I've never heard of some group community collaboration of like painters and musicians and, you know, things like that. So that's, that's pretty neat. So, yeah. well, today we're talking about this, this big old word called deconstruction, you know, talking yeah. about it really from a faith perspective, a Christian spiritual deconstruction aspect. And I know Rhett and Link from Good Mythical Morning is probably one of the more well-known, mm-hmm. uh, if you will, Christians who have deconstructed and essentially deconverted from Christianity. But there's been a lot of others uh, from contemporary Christian musicians, some that yeah. have supposedly abandoned the faith and others that have just really considered their faith, like Lecrae and David Crowder, and then uh, yeah. had a different outcome. And so... As we're getting into this interview, Thanny, could you explain uh, what is commonly believed about the term deconstruction? Yeah, well, I'm glad that you brought up those examples because that is most likely where people are going to first encounter the term. Mm-hmm. Um, people like Rhett and Link, uh, you know, former Christian writer Joshua Harris, he wrote that book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and then uh, went through this process and um what I will say is that um, that is both those stories are both a a good illustration and an an inadequate illustration of what deconstruction is because okay. um, you know from just a few stories the thing is is that the term deconstruction is so new um, when we're talking about it from a spiritual sense you know it has its origins from philosophy in the mid nineteen uh, hundreds but Mm-hmm. that when we refer to spiritual deconstruction that's such a new and ambivalent uh, term mm-hmm. that um people 
we don't have a solid definition for it yet. People are using it differently, which is what makes it so difficult to, to yeah. talk about. But the the term was first coined by a guy named David Hayward. He calls himself the naked pastor. So he's Northern United States, grew up um, evangelical guy who went through this process of deconstruction. He talks about, um, he, there was an instigating circumstance where he went to a workshop on hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. And one of the hermeneutical methods that was being presented as not viable, you know, it was a, the idea of um, being able to interpret things subjectively from, right. you know, that there was no like objective meaning or authorial intent that needed oh. to be. So it was being presented by the Christians as this is not, you know, a viable way to interpret the Bible. And he was actually very attracted by that. Yeah. And that kind of led him into this journey of uh, crisis and reevaluating everything. And he used the word he was the first one supposedly to have used the word deconstruction to refer to this you know mysterious process that he was going through yeah um and you mentioned the word deconversion and and i'm glad that you brought that up too because Mm -hmm. between both kind of christian circles and secular circles there's a lot of synonyms that are used for deconstruction deconversion disaffiliation becoming a religious nun at like n-o-n-e right uh, yeah. no religion kind of thing and um and i push back against those synonyms a little bit because i feel like um when we when we talk about deconstruction it doesn't and i'll give my definition in a little bit but it doesn't um it doesn't require only one outcome of leaving the faith entirely losing it you know which is i think what a lot of christians think of um you know because you see Rhett and Link, you see Joshua Harris, you see the lead singer of Hawk Nelson, or some of the people from Hillsong mm-hmm. go through deconstruction, and the result is inevitably, yeah, none of this is real, and I don't believe this anymore, you know, or something, something distorted. Right. Um, and uh, like you said, I mean, I think that deconstruction has multiple outcomes, uh, some of which uh, don't involve leaving the faith. So. So would you say deconstruction, would you say, is it healthy, unhealthy? Is it both? Does it depend? What are your thoughts and why? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Um, The way that I like to say it is that the the process itself is inherently neutral. And Mm. the reason why is because my take is that people don't willingly enter deconstruction, something that happens to them. Mm. Um, There's a crisis. Uh, really, I believe that it's best categorized as a spiritual crisis. And a spiritual crisis is not something that you wake up one day and you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have oh. a spiritual crisis, you know. <laughs> right. there's, there's some instigating events that happen in your life that thrust you, mm-hmm. you know, forcibly into this place of unknown and right. uh, figuring things out. And so um, the process itself is inherently neutral, but there are different outcomes um, that can be healthy or unhealthy. And I even, I mean, I look at deconstruction with a very hopeful eye because the way that I see it is that um, you've got immature faith entering into a space of um, crisis and mm-hmm. the, the outcome can be, this, may, this process may be the only way in which someone is going to grow and mature and mm-hmm. come out with a faith that's stronger than it ever could have been before, you know? And so this is in a lot of ways necessary to grow right. for some people. Uh, but it, it can also have unhealthy, you know, if you, if you abandon it, um, 
I have a number of terms I use to describe the different kinds of outcomes. So you can, uh -huh. you know, discard or distort your faith. Uh -huh. um, those I wouldn't advocate for. Um, those outcomes I don't, you know, those are unhealthy. So would, <clears throat> I'm trying to paint a picture. So whereas yeah. construction, you know, like if you're constructing a building, you're going to mm -hmm. put it up piece by piece, the frames, the walls, the windows, the doors, plumbing, things like that. So would you make deconstruction analogous to that, just the opposite process whereby you're breaking down a view piece by piece and then inspecting each piece? Is that sort of what deconstruction is? Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly why um, this the word is effective, because it brings up that that concept of a, a building, you know, mm -hmm. and a building has um, a foundation uh, both kind of a substructural foundation and superstructural foundation. So mm, substructural right. being, you know, the, the block of concrete, mm. you know, underneath the ground, you know, maybe some pylons that reach down to, you know, stuff underneath the ground. That's where everything is built on top of. Right. And then you've got the superstructural stuff being like, you know, uh, girders, beams, walls, roof, those kinds of things that are also part of the structure, but are being built on top. Mm -hmm. Um, Deconstruction is a process of um, disassembling and scrutinizing the house that you were that you were given, essentially. Yeah. Um, so people growing up inheriting beliefs from their family, from their church, from the culture, whatever it is, they have a the house that's built for them, and um, at some point in their journey, they realize they you know, haven't been building this house or have had little participation in building this house. And then mm. um, something about it seems shaky, you know, mm. that, like I said, there's some instigating event, maybe it could be akin to a natural disaster, like an earthquake that, you know, that crumbles the foundation. And now they're in a space where they have to break down whatever mm. was built and rebuild something. Yeah. So a lot of cases where I'm looking at uh, in reading and seeing about deconstruction cases, I'm reading about people saying, you know, I grew up in a evangelical home and this and that, and I never really believed. Uh, I, I look at that, you know, sort of like this house analogy where someone just grows up in this house that's already built. And then when they yeah. get old enough, they're like, do I want to live in this house still? So let me look at how the walls are shaped. Uh with that regard and knowing a little bit about the generalized idea of deconstruction, what does it specifically mean when we're talking about Christian deconstruction? Could you elaborate mm -hmm. on that aspect? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the term deconstruction, I think is primarily in this sense is primarily used for those in the evangelical space. Um, I, I don't know. Of, I haven't heard a lot of people using it, you know, deconstructing from secular humanism or deconstructing from mm, okay. Catholicism or something. I think that, you know, the term can apply to that. In fact, one of the things I talk about all the time is that deconstruction is really just a new word for a very old concept. <laughs> you That's know, true, I, yeah. previously, I think a lot of people would, would have referred to this historically as like a crisis of faith. And now we're just using a new word for it. Okay. Um, I think it's slightly different. I think there's some nuances, some you know, new developments that make it slightly unique. But for the most part, this is mm -hmm. this is an old idea with a new term. And so whenever we're talking about Christian deconstruction, usually what uh, people are referring to is mm -hmm. um, 
growing up in an evangelical background, a fundamentalist Christian background, and um, experiencing some kind of uh, instigating circumstance or culmination of instigating circumstances in their life that caused them to question, okay, you know, this is what I've been told is right on my life, but mm-hmm. why, you know, like, right. and that's the disassembling part is there's something about it that seems shaky. You know, it was fine up until one point they were solid, you know, maybe akin to being like a child in faith and not really experiencing any disruption. And then at some point, there's something that happens that shakes the whole foundation. And now it's like, okay, this is stupid or what's happening or, Mm -hmm. you know, why, why, why are we interpreting the Bible that way or whatever those questions may be. So you went through the process of deconstruction with faith. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that my deconstruction is maybe a little bit more unique than, um, what is commonly referred to as deconstruction, but I still consider it to be a form of deconstruction. Okay. Uh, When we're looking at deconstruction specifically from the faith, yeah, uh, in in your, in your views and in your understanding and everything you've studied and even went through, are there certain stages one goes through when they're going through this process of deconstruction? If so, what are they? Yeah. Um, So, I'm glad that you asked this question because up until I, I I got that question, I didn't ever think about um, really what those stages would look like. And so last night I was workshopping a, a, a simple graphic yeah. um, that you can show. I mean, um, I sent it to you on email, but you can you can edit it into the video if you want or or okay. screen share wherever it works. Um, Do you need a screen share? Um, yeah, I can actually, edit it. yeah. Okay, let's see. Let me see if I can do that real quick. Okay, you <laughs> Sorry, should I be warned good you. now. No, you're good. <laughs> All right, let's you see. You should be able to now. All right, can you see okay. yep. that screen? Got it. Okay, so basically um the state the way that i conceptualize the stages of this process being you've got you know pre-crisis state and you've got post-crisis state um so let me let me give you my just very clear definition of deconstruction before i move on i the way that i define it is it's a spiritual crisis in which someone uh, disassembles and scrutinizes fundamental theological beliefs and logical frameworks that they inherited Okay. And so seeing it as a crisis means that it's something that kind of happens to them. Mm -hmm. And then they're forced into a situation of right now I have to, I'm here, you know? And so that's why whenever I talk about the pre-crisis state, you've got that everything is fine. And then there's something, um, you know, it could be trauma. It could be as simple as kid goes off to college and gets bombarded with a number of viewpoints of, you know, uh, the Bible is a fairy tale written by, you know, unlightened apes, <laughs> you yeah. know, to, you know, religion is stupid or, you know, what have you, right. those kind of instigating circumstances culminate to th- thrusting this person, the, the deconstructor into this crisis state, which is deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And it's a point of no return. You can't, <laughs> you can't go back to that blissful ignorance or that, mm. uh, you know, you have to work with it. And so that's the, the the deconstruction process itself involves instability and then these resolutions 
And I say resolutions because it's not a linear process. Um, it, perhaps it can be in some cases, but it, it's not required to be a linear process that, you know, um, I, I, have, I have immature faith, mm -hmm. instigating circumstance, I deconstruct, I reconstruct, I'm done. <laughs> oh, right. It doesn't work like that, um, <laughs> you know, in practicality. So the way that it, the way that it normally happens is that there's a, a period of time and it could be, I don't know, I mean, it could be anywhere between months to, to years to, to potentially decades where someone is in this mm -hmm. unstable place where they're questioning and working through, you know, what they believe in and evaluating it. Right. And they might come to one resolution and then kind of be teetering on that, not super solid in that and kind of go back into the unstable place, question more, come out with a different resolution and kind of do this okay. in and out until at some point, hopefully they land on some solid ground and, and exit deconstruction um, or enter reconstruction. Although I'm questioning whether or not I you know, should use that terminology because again mm -hmm. one of my biggest gripes with um, the christian side of things is that uh -huh. it it becomes this process becomes so simplified that it can be controlled and it's it's really grief honestly is what's happening someone is having the rug pulled out from underneath them right and um and they react in different ways out of fear and um, frustration and with grief you can't can't really control it you can only do what you can to heal it and you know the only way out is through and so um that's why I, I sometimes i don't know how to respond to calling it reconstruction you know like it's something that you can control it's more about um it's more about working alongside with someone and you know as they process through on their own what what's going on so but uh, yeah. with these aspects would it be a matter that it's not necessarily head knowledge that people are going through during these times. It's more of a, an emotional uh, struggle or an inner dialogue they're having with themselves. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Um, and I feel like that's critical. So the, the understanding the difference between an intellectual understanding and an experiential understanding. And, um, and really, I mean, not to get too theological, but I think that that's a good starting place for understanding what eternal life is. You know, Jesus talks about in John 17, 3, that eternal life is knowing God. And that the word is the, the Greek word, which is, you know, a, a very experiential mm -hmm. understanding, not a, not just a head, you know, right. understanding. And so as people, this is a relational process. Um, people have an attachment with God that is simple and um, mm -hmm. and then gets fractured. Um, and now they're in a place of trying to understand who God is and do they believe in him and what is their relationship with him. And the whole process is fundamentally, I think, um, you know, a, an experiential, developing an experiential understanding of who he is and developing that intimacy with him mm -hmm. um, in their theology, in their understanding of reality. Um, so it is both it is not just questioning, you know, and that's okay. one, that's another kind of definition that I, that I push back against when some people use deconstruction to just say, it's just an intellectual exercise of questioning. Mm. No, not, I mean, it is that, but it's not only that it's that in tandem with being in an emotional instability, um, 
a crisis, you know, a grief process. It's both of those things, really. And the reason why I push for that is because that is what's happening. I mean, that that the people who are in that state are the ones who are using the term, and that's what they're experiencing. It's not simply just asking questions. Um, so, um, so yeah, it is. It is really what I think deconstruction is. Is like you said, it's it's taking um, head knowledge. You know, something they're given. A, you've got someone who's given a basket of beliefs, and mm -hmm. they're holding the basket, and uh, it's not really theirs. They're holding it, you know, for somebody else. And at some point, um, they hit a, a point in their their own faith journey where they have a choice of making it their own or or dropping it. Um, and so this is the process of figuring that out. Okay. Now, you had made mention that you personally had went through this process or s something similar to it, if you will. Yeah. A uh, couple questions for you. Uh, what were some questions you personally wrestled with through this process? And what were, were your struggles emotional, intellectual? You said, you know, many times they can be both, uh, but it's always like an inner, inner grief. Uh, could you yeah. explain what you wrestled with and uh, just a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, go back with me in time to uh, 2014, 2016 timeframe, those couple years. I'm uh, relatively fresh out of high school, uh, first couple years of college. I was mm. at the University of North Texas. Okay. And um, uh, solidly founded uh, believer. I grew up in a Christian home um, and uh, my parents were um, great about um, not really they were great about questioning. They were great about asking questions, engaging in discussions. So growing up, I had a lot of autonomy over my own faith, um, which was incredibly helpful for me. Um, it didn't quite subvert the capacity for me to go through crisis All right. yeah. <laughs> in my faith. But, right. but I do think that um, what it did subvert is a substructural crisis. So I mentioned those terms earlier, substructural yeah. versus superstructural. And this is a concept that I'm workshopping. So Okay. Don't hold me to it, but I think that there's a possibility for um, that distinction to be made um, where a substructural crisis is, you know, what's holding the whole building up, like, do, does God exist, you know, is Jesus God, is Jesus a real person, is the Bible, you know, reliable document that can be read historically, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Those are substructural crisis questions. Superstructural crisis questions are, you know, I don't, I know that God exists, you know, I know this or that, but, you know, something more detailed about my theology that is still critical. Like, you know, am I, am I saved? Am I still saved if I, if I doubt, if I sin too much, you know, those kind of questions or, okay. um, you know, what is the purpose for living? Why am I here? Um, why don't I just cut the cord? <laughs> right, <laughs> Which was, yeah. I, that's a preview of what my crisis was. So, <laughs> I was in college. Um, I was doing well in school. I was um, I was a real go-getter type, you know. So I uh, was taking over twenty hours in music and uh, somehow managing that with a social life and everything. And I had a great time. Um, but eventually, I started noticing that um, my body was failing me in ways that it hadn't before. I used to bike to school all the time, and at some point in twenty fourteen, fall semester. Um, 
stopped being able to ride my bike. My legs were getting tired a lot sooner than they used to. And mm-hmm. uh, that continually kept getting worse progressively until, you know, one week, a couple of weeks before finals season, um, I got sick with something that just knocked me out. I was out for like 20 hours a day sleeping mm-hmm. and I'd wake up and just be disoriented and confused and extremely achy and tired and uh, got tested for strep flu, both negative. Right. I think now I look back, I wonder if I had mono, but but I've, I recovered from that and finished out the semester just kind of eking by. And then I, uh, you know, spent the next month holiday vacation, came back for the spring semester. And within a month, I was on the phone with my dad telling him, um, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I, I'm thinking about killing myself. And, um, and then over the next two years, um, I dealt with, uh, you know, progressively worsening symptoms health-wise with this mysterious illness that I had no, no name for, no answers to. I went to dozens of doctors, different specialists. Nobody kept throwing solutions at me. None of them worked, a lot, and a lot of them made it worse. Oh, wow. And then, um, so I'm just, I'm dealing with that. And then I also had this uh, intense romantic heartbreak, and then... I put together this uh, musical project that I, you know, worked with like over 50 people. It was, it was a collaboration of me and a funk band, a local funk band. Oh, cool. The 17 piece uh, album over an hour long of recorded music that I all arranged and wrote. I poured my heart into this. Um, we raised tens of thousands of dollars to, to make it happen. And uh, everything went swimmingly until the day that it released and then uh to this day so i released that in the beginning of 2016 and Mm -hmm. even up to now i think i've sold two copies (laughs) oh wow and so when i talk about instigating circumstances Mm -hmm. in that graphic of the stages Mm -hmm. um when i look back at my own story those are the instigating circumstances that weren't necessarily related to my faith but that thrust me into a crisis slash grief state right um and you know, so that heartbreak, that chronic illness, and that um, that outward failure of you know everything that I worked worked for and cared about, right. and you know claimed identity, and you know I was a musician. That was who I was. You know, I'm an artist, and nobody cares. I have nothing of value to offer. Mm. Um, and over the next uh, 2016, 2017 timeframe. Mm-hmm. I would call my deconstruction crisis. I was, those things thrust me into this state of grief um, and, you know, lack of stability that um, started to bring into question spiritual things as well. And really the root of my questioning, like I said, it wasn't a substructural thing. I mean, at that point I was staunchly free grace. Uh, so I knew that I was saved. I, I knew that there was nothing that I could do. I mean, I, also in vulnerability. I mean, at that time I was steeped in, um, sexual addiction and, uh, you know, sleeping and overeating and complete isolation. I mean, I spent a whole year in one room. I hardly left that room more than five times. Wow. (laughs) Wow. So I was, I was just debilitated as a person in, in every way. And, uh, but I, I, I knew I was saved. I never really had, uh, major questions about that. I mean, every once in a while I'll have doubts, but but nothing that rocked me. Really, the root of my questioning was, um, what's the point? 
why am I here? You know, especially because I know that uh, I know that I'm, I'm, I know that I'm saved and know where I'm going. I'm in a lot of suffering right now. Um, I have no hope for getting out of this because I didn't even have a name for my disease at the time. I went to so many doctors, you know, I'm just stuck. And so my solution was, well, I can just, I can just go be with the Lord. (laughs) What's the point? And so that was the root of my deconstruction process was um, struggling with, um, you know, this, this shaky foundation of the purpose of suffering really was what I usually tell people. I had an inadequate theology of suffering um, and my deconstruction process involved um, breaking those things down, reevaluating them and then filling holes. You know, Dr. Dave Anderson talks a lot about how our, our hope uh, in theology and developing an understanding, a framework of reality is not to have a perfect system without holes necessarily, but just to adopt the one or develop one that has the fewest holes, the ones that we can deal with. And so mm-hmm. that was me. Uh, I had a lot of holes. I had no reason to live. I had no reason to live on earth in this life. I, you know, and it took me um, developing a whole picture of both the positive and specifically the negative consequences for believers. Um, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, at the time, and I don't want to talk too much about this and uh-huh. there's other questions, but, but me reconstructing, if you want to use that term was okay. um, developing uh, an adequate understanding of the negative consequences mm-hmm. um, uh, at the Bama seat, for instance, you know, suffering loss of rewards or an understanding of what Jesus talks about when he references the outer darkness right. or um, you know, John in first John talking about being ashamed at his second coming, you know, Um, those kinds of things, an experience of Gehenna for Christians, that kind of thing. Um, Because at the time, you know, it's like, all right, I'm suffering so much and I know the positive rewards that I'll be forfeiting, Mm -hmm. but you know, that's okay. I'll still be with the Lord. (laughs) I'll be okay. I I can, I can deal with that. The suffering that I'm experiencing too much, it's not worth it. When I started to develop a whole picture of both the positive and the negative consequences, the scale started to tip. Now I'm like, okay, maybe my temporary suffering is right. you know, worth going through compared to what I'm, you know, risking here. Was there ever a point during that process that you ever considered the fact that the faith you once held to was not true? Did that ever come up? And did you fear that you believed in something that wasn't true? And did that ever happen? Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that my process was defined by that. Like it is with a lot of people Um, when we're talking about deconstruction, that is usually what is happening is that they're questioning everything, you know, and and afraid that they might've been believing something wrong from the get go and that everything they have is wrong, you know? Right. And that's incredibly frightening. Um, I, I mean, I was suicidally depressed and so I had doubts, (laughs) You know, there would be days where I'd wake up and I'd be like, what if this is all wrong, you know, but I wouldn't say that my process was defined by that uh, per se. Um, Yeah. So you had made mention in the fact that yours wasn't really, you know, questioning the faith per se, but just looking at it from the aspect of suffering and 
and maybe you know the issue of theodicy and you know epicurean paradox yeah. type deal things like that uh what convinced you to hold on to christianity or in the fact on what convinced you to stay here that there was purpose even in yeah. the midst of your struggles uh what what kept you here yeah well the with the question about you know why did i continually believe that christianity was valid mm -hmm. you know in light of that whole crisis circumstance um emotionally i couldn't come up with a better alternative and intellectually i couldn't come up with a better alternative okay i mean yeah. i wasn't really I, I didn't really get into apologetics until after all this. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that's when I started to really kind of get solid on, you know, um, you know, historical arguments, the person of Jesus and mm -hmm. the claims that he made, um, even cosmological arguments for the existence of God and things like that. Right. Um, and I think those are solid, but at the time that uh, I didn't have a deep understanding of those kind of apologetic approaches. And I still believe that Christianity was valid because at that time, I had personal experiences that I couldn't justify away. You know, I I had been in an intimate relationship with God that I didn't reject um, for years. And so even though I was in crisis, um, you know, I'm a very intellectual, intellectually based person. Seems like it. <laughs> I'm not a very, yeah, I'm not a very, uh, I'm learning to be more emotionally expressive <laughs> and more in touch with my emotions. It's part of my recovery and my growth. Um, yeah. But uh but at the time, you know, my questions were were highly intellectual, and um, and even that, even at that point, I mean, I, I I just had no faith in in any of the other systems that I had known about, um, secular humanism or uh, Buddhism. I would say that at the time I was struggling because I really was so attracted to the idea of nihilism, eternal oblivion. I wanted to fall asleep and never wake up. Mm -hmm. was really what I wanted I didn't even want the good stuff you know I, I yeah. at the time the suffering was just intense enough to where that was the most attractive option right but it was more of a hopeful idea to play with in my head than it was an actual intellectual um conviction I I knew that that wasn't viable you know and uh so yeah I mean those were that my my personal experiences with with Christ and with the father beforehand were critical um, to keeping me solid. Uh, I couldn't rationalize those away um, and uh, didn't have a better alternative. Uh, you know, there wasn't another system that I was approached with at the time. Mm -hmm. I think that happens to a lot of people. Um, they're approached with a system that does seem better than the one that they were given. That uh -huh. wasn't my case. So when you had made mention that <clears throat> faith-wise, theological-wise, uh, yeah, you couldn't see a better framework or a better worldview than biblical Christianity and the fact that it held true not only from, you know, aspects of Jesus and the historicity there, but your personal experience and testimony. Yeah, but you had mentioned the fact that you just wanted to go to sleep and not wake up. How yeah. did you overcome that feeling and and who who do you attribute the fact that we're able to just talk to you today in that you are able to overcome the uh, suicidal ideations and to be here, you know, what happened? Well, um, 
I don't remember the exact date, but I think it was April 11th, 2016. Mm -hmm. I walked out of my house at uh, 10 or 11 at night. Um, and I tried to kill myself three times. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, I came back that night um, at three or four in the morning. I came back home and uh, my dad was there waiting for me. Um, mm -hmm. And he, I told him, I mean, I was so... I was so out of it, you know, just like delusional at the time, just mm -hmm. so despairing that I had, had nothing really to say. I was just confused and ashamed and a you know, myriad of emotions. But I, the one thing I told him was, I just, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to call it quits yet. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think immediately after that is when I started to get, uh, well, when I started to take initiative on my own to dig deep and try to understand, try to get an answer to the question I had of what's the point, right? Um, you know, are these are these rewards that Christ keeps offering me throughout Christ and the other writers of the New Testament keep offering me throughout uh, the New Testament? Are they really worth it uh, mm. to go through personal suffering? I mean, that's a huge narrative of, of the New Testament is, you know, uh, suffering for something greater. Uh, it's in every book. <laughs> yes. I, I've yet to come across a book that doesn't, you know, touch on that concept at least. Right. And um, so, really, in dealing with that question is is what's why why are they saying this? You know, why is Jesus saying this? Why is Paul saying this? You know, why is Peter saying this? That, um, if you know, this temporary suffering is is worth it for something greater. What are these rewards that are so much so much worth it? Um. And also, you know, starting to develop the idea of, okay, well, it's not just rewards they're talking about, they're also, you know, it, it's a balanced view of, you know, there's some positive things to gain and there's some negative things that you risk for being unfaithful with your life. And mm -hmm. for me, um, what I landed on was, uh, there, there are a number of scriptures that are critical, but the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 was, uh, became um, a fundamental passage for me. Um, understanding that um, God has blessed me with lots of things, given me things into my hands, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Christ being the master, going away for a period of time and giving me things to be faithful with, make use of it, you know, yeah. and uh, me figuring out, you know, what those things were. And I've, and I've come to an interpretation that um, those talents, practically speaking, involve a number of things. It involves my circumstances, my, uh, my gifts, my skills, my, my spiritual gifts, my talents, mm -hmm. my group membership, you know, so I became a missionary in Lebanon because I had access to Lebanon. I was a citizen by, by nature of my blood. And so that was one talent that I wanted to make use of was, you know, it's easier for me to go minister to Lebanon than it would be for someone else, you know, yeah. who, who doesn't have citizenship, you know, that's a talent. And really the biggest one that I came to was time because whenever I was going to cut the cord, um, that was one thing I couldn't reconcile was that, uh, I don't know how much time God would have given me if I ended my life that night, you know, would he have blessed me with another five days or was he going to give me another 70 plus years? Right. And would I be throwing away 70 plus years? I'd be culpable to that at the Bema. And, uh, that was a frightening prospect.
and that was really a huge inspiration to not follow through with killing myself because I was right. like I don't know how much talent I have in my hands necessarily right now don't know how many talents I have yeah. of time now you had made mention I know that you're a free grace guy and and yeah you believe like me in the fact that once we you know trust Christ for you know eternal life that we're we're sealed secured you know and there's nothing we can do to you know lose our salvation if you will but during the time during your deconstruction during your uh your questions and your struggles did the question ever pop up into your mind that you may have lost your salvation and if if so why would you do if not why what what did you hold on to knowing that you struggled this greatly but still trusted in jesus christ to have you for eternal security you know, could you yeah. explain a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, like I said, I mean, intellectually, I was founded pretty solidly in assurance uh, before I went through my crisis. But even so, I mean, the nature of being despairing and in such distress um, right. that the questions come anyway, the doubts come anyway. And especially with sin, mm -hmm. I think me compounding my own crisis with um, uh, sexual addiction issues and stuff made it all that much more uh, likely that I was going to be subject to serious doubts about mm -hmm. my salvation. Um, and I'm glad that you bring that concept up because one of my, um, one of the biggest things that I see with deconstruction stories uh, with people is that um, at some point along the way of their journey, someone that they trusted suggested or told them outright, you know, maybe you're not saved <laughs> or be careful because right. if you doubt too much, you know, you'll apostatize and then you'll right. lose your salvation. So coming from an Armenian perspective, but, um, and I can't tell you how destructive that is because, uh, you know, like I said, um, the deconstruction process for the most part is involuntary. It happens to you. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something that happens in your life that causes you to question. And it's not, it's not that you woke up one day and said, I'm going to defect, you know, yeah. um, at some point in the journey, maybe you do get fed up and you make the, the, you know, a decision that you're accountable for, for just throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Right. But, but the initial circumstance is not your fault. And so whenever you have, someone that you trust, someone who is supposedly representing Christ coming along and saying, yeah, you're never really one of us, or, you know, you're not really regenerate. You're not really um, in God's hands. You know, you'll, you're proving yourself to never have been saved or, or you're threatening your own salvation. Um, can't tell you how destructive that is for people who are in a crisis. I mean, they're, they're in trauma and you're telling them something that it's just compounding the despair. Right. Um, and so, you know, I'm still doing the research for all this in the book that I'm writing, but um, the, I think that the psychological principle of secure attachment, are you familiar with attachment theory at all? No, not really. Huh? Um, neither am I, <laughs> but attachment theory is from what I understand it. It's, it's the concept that um, having a solid foundation in relationships is critical to growth. Um, so usually it's referring to children as they're developing and maturing. 
their relationship with their parents or whoever their guardian is or you know siblings growing up they have an attachment to and it can be secure insecure mm-hmm. and secure attachments are ones where um they're most conducive to growth um so whenever you have we have an attachment to god as well uh, it's a relationship right that's critical to our understanding of our faith is that our relationship with 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 God is is personal and intimate um the need for that to be if if it's not solid if it's not secure if it's unstable Mm -hmm. you can't move forward you can't grow and so whenever you have someone coming along the way and destabilizing your foundation about how you see God and how you how you conceptualize your relationship with him um you you prevent all growth um if it's not secure and so that's why i mean i'm so you know i believe in assurance of salvation from a biblical exegetical standpoint Mm -hmm. um first but i also see how critical it is past that you know from psychological perspective from um, just how important it is how much value it brings to us in sanctification, you cannot be sanctified if you're not solid in that you're justified, which I think is why it's so critical that when Paul goes through uh, in Romans, for instance, when he's talking about, you know, Romans five through eight being like the foundation of there, here's what growth is, here's what sanctification is, here's what's becoming more like Christ and healing from the brokenness of sin. Mm -hmm. Um, He starts with an understanding of, all right, here's where you are. And at the beginning of chapter five being that, you know, you stand in, we, we stand in this favor, you know, um, we, we now stand in that. And I think that that is critical. You have our identity, understanding our irrevocable identity in being assured of, you know, I'm a child of God now, and that's never being taken away is critical to growth, especially for those deconstructing, which is why I'm so adamant about a free grace perspective um, because free grace is the only system I've come across um, that has actual assurance <laughs> really. Yeah. No, you're, um, you're totally right. No matter how they want to package it, whether the Calvinist, the Lordship, the Arminian, whatever yeah. the case is, there is no assurance. And really, I don't even know any other religion that teaches assurance because it isn't Islam. It's not uh Eastern religions with Buddhism, Hinduism, that's still a process of enlightenment is not Mm. Mormonism uh, because you got your three kingdoms and you have no idea which one you're going to unless you try to live a perfect life. And and so I'm with you Mm. on the fact that free grace really is the only one that teaches blessed assurance, you know, and eternal security. But were, were there any other tenets or teachings within free grace theology that you really clung to and, and really helped you through this process or was it mainly just eternal security? Well, security, the, the assurance um, stabilized me mm-hmm. to prevent a substructural uh, deterioration. So, you know, I never really dealt with uh my my process wasn't defined by am i am i saved mm-hmm. and, and i'm thankful for that free grace was critical to that and so um i usually tell people free grace both helped and not helped because oh, okay it, and and I, i'll qualify that because um 
it wasn't that free grace didn't help. It was that an inadequate understanding of free grace doesn't help. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so the, the assurance part um, helped a lot. And, uh, but the, the lack of understanding of the whole picture of uh, human responsibility and consequences for unfaithful living mm -hmm. slash consequences for faithful living in this life um, is something that I didn't have. Okay. And so that created a very unique conundrum for me theologically, because I knew that I was saved no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I also had no reason to live. <laughs> so right. I was, you know, that made it very easy for me to go to suicide as being right. an answer. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm thankful because uh, I guess God wasn't content with that. <laughs> and uh, I guess neither was I, because at some point I, you know, when I, when it came down to the wire, um, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't jump off the edge. You know, I, I, I couldn't do that yet. So um, what really, what I clung to is, like I said before, is um, developing an understanding of eschatological rewards and consequences mm -hmm. um, that gave me an understanding for the purpose of, uh, of living, you know, of living through intense suffering, no matter how intense or how unbearable it is, um, that there, that there's something infinitely more, you know, valuable than destructive. Right. It makes me think of, uh, I think it's in second Corinthians chapter one, where Paul opens up and he says, you know, blessed be the God of all comfort who comforts us with his comfort. That way we may be able to comfort others, yeah. you know, and I think through the trials and the struggles we, you know, that are unique for all of us, that God wants to use those who help encourage and help others get through. Uh, I tend to call those victory testimonies, but mm. so what would you like to say to anybody that may be watching that is currently going through this process of spiritual deconstruction? What advice, what would you want to say to those people in the middle of it right now? Yeah. Um, well, the first thing that I would say is, um, I'm sorry that you're going through it. Um, because the way that I see it is the, the rug's been pulled out from underneath you and you didn't ask for that. <laughs> Yeah. you're in it you're in a state of confusion and despair and instability that uh that you didn't ask for that you didn't willingly enter and um and i don't even think that you did anything to warrant that necessarily um and so my a huge part of my ministry uh to people in deconstruction is to to come alongside them and counsel them, um, minister to them, comfort them in that space of, you know, this isn't your fault. Um, you're now you still have a responsibility, you know, you have a choice to make, um, you know, about what you're, how you're going to respond to all this, you know, this suffering that you're in. Um, but the fact that you're in it is, you know, you didn't do anything to, to warrant this necessarily. And I'm also sorry for the ways that people uh, don't help. <laughs> You know, um, because both uh, both sides of the coin, you know, um, uh, from from the Christian side of things, from the secular side of things, um, there's there's very unhelpful, even hurtful uh, responses, um, whether it's being dismissed or invalidated, um, being rejected, um, being cast out, that kind of thing. Um, 
is incredibly hurtful. And in fact, I mean, one thing I would say to deconstructors is that um, it's important to know that you're going to be hurt by people that you trust in your process of grief than you'll likely ever be hurt in any other stage of your life. You know, people don't know what to do. <laughs> people are horrible grief counselors. Um, I think Job's friends were great up until they opened their mouths, really. Um, and so um, uh, the last few things I would say really is the only way out is through. I mentioned that before. Uh, you can't go back, and I'm sorry to tell you that, but um, the truth is there is hope that you can exit this space. You don't have to be in this crisis forever. And uh, we can't necessarily control how long you're in this space, but we have um, we have opportunity, you know, you have opportunity in your own choices. God's going to continually be pursuing you and chasing you and helping you. And then um, people like me and other people around you who I call guidance groups, um, we also have a part to play. And uh, if we all work together, uh, we can, you know, we can exit this crisis. We can work toward that solution. So. Amen. So on the other side of that coin, what yeah. advice would you give for those of us that know somebody going yeah. through this process? What should we do to help if we can even help? I talk a lot about fear. Um, that's a huge part of my ministry is educating people on fear and specifically the ways in which it leads us to uh, consciously or, or unconsciously manipulate control um and so what i would say to people who are in a you know who are in that space where someone that they know whether it's their i've heard so many stories it's their child it's their best friend it's their spouse it's their parent it's their pastor you know you name it someone that they trust someone that they care about deeply is going through a crisis and therefore you're in a crisis <laughs> oh that's true yeah you know, you're 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 watching somebody that you love go through something immensely um confusing and and very dangerous and um and so you're in a crisis and so um two things that i would say is um you know don't be don't be deluded about that um understand that you need to seek your own healing um and um help comfort in that space you're hurting as well and also knowing that you're hurting um that if you want to be a helpful presence a loving presence to that person, um, killing fear is critical. Um, okay. Understanding where your own fear is and making a conscious choice to not submit to it and submit to love instead and do what is going to minister to that person um, is critical. And there's so much that I could say about that, um, but I'll save it for the book <laughs> or, or my blog articles. I'll, I'll have a lot more written on there. Um, but minister and don't manipulate. So would there be any, uh, should we be like Job's friends and, and try to give advice or should we just keep our mouth shut and just pray for them and just uh, be an ear and be a shoulder? Um, I think it depends. Um, you know, not all of uh, Job's friends were off. I mean, I think I my interpretation is that Elihu at the end of uh, the story of Job had some good things to say. Um, you know, was it the best way to say it? I, I don't know. I, right. I have to dig more into that. But um, 
really, I mean, what I believe to be the most loving, helpful response mm -hmm. is to, um, is to be quiet when you need to be quiet and speak encouragement when you need to speak encouragement. Really the way that I talk about it is, um, is, is having an analytical eye. So mm -hmm. I didn't get into this, uh, in this interview, but, um, there are multiple roots of the deconstruction crisis. You know, it can be intellectual, it can be emotional, it can be traumatic. Um, and so being able to, at every given moment that you're interacting with someone in that crisis, understanding where they are in that moment, you know, is, are they dealing with an intellectual issue? You know, I, I can't make sense of this. Discuss intellectually, you know patiently and gently, but, you know, interact with them intellectually, because that's what they're dealing with at the time. Um, if, if the root of their crisis in that moment is emotional, you know, they're disenchanted by the fact that, um, you know, there's so much suffering in the world and, you know, where's God's goodness in that, or um, there's a, a very unfortunate conflation between Christian fundamentalism and uh, the Republican Party and the rise of Trump and the character of that guy is not great. You know, what's all that about? You know, or my church talks about love, but, you know, at the end of the day, they, you know, they seem to be more about money or whatever. Mm -hmm. Those kind of emotional disenchantment issues, you engage with that emotionally. You know, it doesn't need logical discourse at that point. It doesn't need theological uh, interpretation. That's not really the root of what they're needing uh, right. and if it's trauma you know um there i've met a number of deconstructors um know a lot about different stories of uh men and women who've been abused spiritually sexually um physically emotionally in church environments by christians people claiming christ and not acting like him at all um trauma is its own special category that needs to be dealt with with sensitivity <laughs> yeah. you know and so um, the best kind of responses that you can have uh, to be a helpful grief counselor to someone who's in crisis is to, to your best of your ability, analyze, you know, the particular crisis that they're in that moment and respond accordingly, you know, mirror. Um, don't, uh, I mean, really what shuts people down is that if they're in an emotional state and you're dealing with them from a logical standpoint, it's not helping. <laughs> It's not reaching them, you know, yeah. what you're saying may be totally valid. Um, and, uh, but it's not really the root of what they're struggling with. And it's not helping and, that, and no. vice versa with the other, you know, categories as well. No, you're, I appreciate you mentioning that because there's a book that I have called conversational evangelism and it's by mm. the Geislers. And in the book, yeah. uh, they talk about what barriers people have to uh, Christianity when you're out there trying to witness and he says, you know, three main categories of barriers people have are emotional barriers, intellectual barriers, and volitional barriers. And basically oh, with volitional barriers, it's the fact that they just don't want to believe. They don't want to trust. And so one of the questions we ask right up front is, if all the evidence pointed to Christianity being true, would you believe? If they say no right off the bat, I mean, we move on. Yeah. But then he talks about the emotional and the intellectual. Sometimes the intellectual questions are, I can't understand, you know, the Trinity and it's so far out, you know, or they have some sort of academic type question they can't reconcile. So like you say, that's when we want to give an intellectual answer. 
And then if yeah. it's an emotional, if they went through trauma, maybe they lost a loved one so early in life. I mean, yeah. trying to spout out scripture and intellectual understanding to what happened is not going to help the emotion trauma there. And that's where we need to weep with those that weep, mourn with those that mourn. And so in that yeah. book, they really help try to give practical tips on how to uncover what barrier they have by asking targeted specific questions. And like you said, having the analytical eye to be able yeah. to really discern the key words they're saying to identify whether it's emotional, intellectual, or volitional. And so mm. that's when you mentioned that, it made me think of that book, Conversational Evangelism. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Well, as we wrap up, I do want to thank you for, you know, sharing your your heart, you know, your journey, if you will. As we wrap up, is there any final thoughts, anything you wanted to go over again or, or just any parting words you'd like to share with those still watching and listening? Um, I'm looking through my notes here. Yeah. Real quick. Now you said uh you have goldenapples.art art. Goldenapples.art, yeah. I'd write I'll hopefully be putting a lot more about these things in depth mm -hmm. um there. Mm -hmm. And um I mean I think I, I think I covered it all. Um mm -hmm. if there's if I missed anything, I'll cover it, I'll cover it over there. So <laughs> I'll leave it at that. So outside of goldenapples.art, is there any other uh platforms people can check you out follow you or anything like that or is that it right now uh that's pretty much it i'm not a big social media guy um you're an artist how golden... are you not a social media guy <laughs> i know i know <laughs> i mean i'm i'm kind of banking on golden apples social media youtube mm -hmm. website to kind of be the main way that i express everything that i need to express ministry and musically so mm -hmm. um yeah, goldenapples.art is a great landing spot. It'll, you'll find everything okay. about me there. So, Excellent. Well, we'll have links in the descriptions of the video and the podcast as well for that, YouTube and the website. And so for those still you know, with us, uh, thanks for checking this out and go ahead and let us know uh, what your thoughts are. If you're going through you know, these struggles, you know, let us know, C4C, so we can pray for you. Uh, yep. You can shoot us an email. Uh, get a hold of uh, goldenapples.art and the YouTube. I'm sure there's maybe a contact information out there to get a hold of Thanny also. But mm -hmm. just know you're not alone. Uh, it's not necessarily unique to you. Uh, your journey may be unique per se, but the process itself. And there, there's definitely a way, uh, way out, like Thanny said, and God's going to be with you every step of the way. And uh, just let us know if there's any way we can minister to you, love on you, pray for you, whatever the case is. And so thanks, like, comment, share, subscribe. You know everything about that. And uh, God bless.